Going with a reading of the classics. But what's going to be next? <laughs> we have to finish Pythagoras and uh, the life of Pythagoras and the additional notes. <laughs> so uh, we're on uh, additional notes within Iambicus's life of Pythagoras, such as, in, this is like a quote, such as infallible predictions of earthquakes, rapid explosions of pestilence. This is uh, from page 72. Since Pythagoras, as Am Ambicus informs us, uh -huh. page 7, was in initiated into the mysteries of Beeblis and Tyre. He's an initiate of B-Y-B-L-U-S and Tyre, T-Y-R-E, in the sacred operations of the Syrians. Uh, Mm. He got to have, he, have, he was initiated into all subsets of gurus, <laughs> all subset initiations, <laughs> was initiated. Uh, oh, well, this is pre-Christian, right, so it's, uh, what was it? <laughs> Goodness, before? It could only be Zoroastrianism or or Egyptian or or uh, religions <laughs> of the stone sculptures and hieroglyphs also. Well, I don't know what it is. Assyrians, uh, hmm. the Syrians, they called the Assyrians probably. Syrians. They mostly known as Assyrians. <sighs> Well, mysteries of by boss and tire. And I think they called Assyrians that from Sirius, the star Sirius, you know, they were in touch with the extraterrestrials, mm -hmm. the Sirius, the constellation of. Uh, mm -hmm. well, that's the brightest star. Uh, the I star don't know. Well, uh, Ambicus informs us. Syrians, of course, they like uh, Syrians. Uh, and it's probably the name comes from the star Sirius. And the stone, uh, well, they have a lot of strange uh, depictions. These are Syrians of the time of Pythagoras. Yeah, yeah. They used to be called Assyrians, though. Assyrians. Oh, Assyrians. Mesopotamians and Assyrians. That's civilizations. All right, well, Ambicus informs us, uh, Pythagoras was initiated in all the mysteries of Biblis and Tyre, in the sacred operations of the Syrians and in the mysteries of the Phoenicians, and also that he spent... Phoenicians and Assyrians. Phoenicians and Caesarea. Yeah, Phoenicians. Isn't the phonetic... Uh, <laughs> the alphabet is almost Phoenician. Mm -hmm, yeah, that he spent two he spent years. He spent two, two and twenty years, twenty-two years, in the Adita 
A D Y T. Arita. What's that? That's the very deep, the way, the Adita. It's an Adita. It is a, a very deep mystery, some, some Adita means uh, something mm. that... Uh, deep mysteries. Where you don't go, in a way, mm. too deep to go. Really? Adita. This reading is about learning a new words. We're digging into the deeper part of the mysteries of the Vagaris <laughs> to figure out where he learned everything. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Where's that word, Adita, come from? It says it's the innermost sanctity sanctuary of an ancient Greek temple, Harita. It's also, yeah, it's also the place of the temple that only uh, no. the highest priest goes. The highest no, priest. The, the, the deepest mysteries for God, because they call it Harita. Alexa, can you define the word Harita? Synthesis is a genus of moths of the family Noctuidae. Mm. Can you uh, define uh, define the Greek word aditum? Adita. Alexa, what is the word for the innermost sanctuary of an ancient Greek temple? Sorry, I'm not <laughs> sure. That's impenetrable to her, I guess. It's impenetrable. It's Adita. It's Adita to her. Uh-huh. Okay, so 20 years in the Adita of temples in Egypt associated with the Magi in Babylon. He also went to Babylon's Magi. Mm-hmm. And was destructed by them in their venerable knowledge. Uh-huh. It is not at all wonderful that he was skilled in magic and theurgy, and was therefore able to perform things which surpass merely human power, and which appear to be perfectly incredible to the vulgar. For magic, as we learn from Sipicillus in his MS treatise on demons, formed the last part of the sacerdotal science. He farther likewise informs us us, that magic investigates the nature, power, and quality of everything sublunary and vis-a-vis of the elements and of the parts of animals, all various plants and the fruits of stones and herbs, and in short it explores the essence and power of everything. Hmm. From whence, therefore, it produces its effects. My goodness. And it forms statues which procure health. Uh, statues. Now, is a statue not a statue? It's a statue. Statues which procure health. Now, makes all various figures and things which become the instruments of disease. It asserts, too, that eagles and da- dragons contribute to health. But that cats, dogs, and crows are symbols of vigilance, uh to which therefore they contribute. Uh, Vigilant. You think crows are vigilant? Mm -hmm. And cats are? Yeah. 
but for the fashioning of certain parts, wax and clay are used. Often, too, celestial fire is made to appear through magic. And then statues laugh, S-T-A-T-U-E-S. And lamps are spontaneously enkindled. You think a lamp can be spontaneously enkindled? Huh? Yeah, probably. The master can do that. The master. See the original in the notes to my Parsanius. Page 325. And the theurgy, T-H-E-U-R-G-Y, was employed by the ancients in the mysteries. I have fully proved in my treatise on the Elysian and Bactic mysteries. Oh, yes, yeah, see, Thomas Taylor, he has a treatise on the mysteries. He called, says, I have fully proved in my treatise on the Elysian... Lucinian, Lucinian and Bactic mysteries. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, conformably to this, Plato also in the first Alcibiades says that the magic of Zoaster consisted in the worship of the gods, on which passage I shall present the reader with what I have said. In the first volume of my Plato, page 63, as it would enable him to see that the theurgy of the ancients is founded in the theory equally scientific and sublime. This is a, a lot of Thomas Taylor writing because he adds these notes. <laughs> the following account of magic by Proclus originally formed, as it appears to me, a part of the commentary written by him on the present passage for the MS, is that a manuscript? For the MS, Commentary of Proclus, which is extant on this dialogue, does not extend to more than a third part of it. And this dissertation on magic, which is only extant, extant in Latin, was published by Facinus, the translator, immediately after his excerpta from this commentary, so that it seems highly probable that the manuscript from which Facinus, he's another guy like uh, Facinus is, what is he, like a Neoplatonist? (laughs) Translated as excerpta was much more perfect than that which has been preserved to us in consequence of containing this account of the magic of the ancients. Oh, he, he, uh, he was more thorough in preserving the magic of the ancients. Facinus. In the same manner as lovers gradually advance from that beauty which is apparent in sensible forms to that which is divine. So the ancient priest, when they considered that there is a certain alliance and sympathy in natural things to each other and of things manifest to occult powers and discover that all things consist, subsist in all. They fabricated a sacred science from this mutual sympathy and similarity. Hmm. I guess uh, sacred science existed back then in the temples. (laughs) Do you ever crack the code? 
Thus they recognize things supreme and such as are subordinate and the subordinate in the supreme. In the celestial regions, terrene properties subsisting in the castle and celestial manner and inert celestial properties, but according to a terrene condition. For how shall we account for those plants called heliotropes, uh, that is, attendance on the sun, moving in correspondence with the re revolution of its orb, but salinotropes, or attendance on the moon. Uh -huh. I guess there's plants that are heliotropes. Um, they do the They what? They do they turn in the day. No. Selena is the moon. Selenotropes. Selenotropes that attend upon the moon. The heliotropes, the sunflower, turns with the sun. You know that? Yeah, okay, I get it now. Selene, is that like a word for moon? It's all in the etymological analysis. It's all in the words. You think learning is just words? <laughs> All right, so now we have, he's saying that, well, they see that there's some celestial properties and everything's related here. What he says, the sacred science. So they are recognized, things surprised, supreme, and such as are subordinate, and the subordinate in the supreme, and in the celestial regions, terrene properties, consisting in a causal and celestial manner, in which are its celestial properties, but according to a terrene condition, for how shall we account for those plants called heliotropes, that is, attendance on the sun, moving in correspondence with the evolution of its orb, but sanotropes, or attendance on the moon, turning in exact conformity to her motion. Hmm. Some plants turn to the moon and some plants to the sun. Is it not true? Uh -huh. You think Basho and Segya would have noticed this? <laughs> it is because all things pray and him the leaders but of the respective also, orders. What? I think Segyo and Basho, the haiku poets, were selenotropes. Uh -huh. You think they reincarnated still selenotropes? Uh -huh. They're always looking at the moon all the time. Uh -huh. It is because all things pray and him the leaders of their respective orders, but some intellectually and others rationally, some in a natural and others after a sensible manner. Hence the sunflower as far as it is able, moves in a circular dance towards the sun, so that if anyone could hear the pulsation made by its circuit in the air, he would perceive something composed by a sound of this kind in honor of its king, such as a, as a plant is capable of framing. Once, too, we may behold the sun and the moon and the earth, but according to a terrene quality. Terrene sounds like it means earth, right? Terrestrial. Yeah. Terrene. But in the celestial regions, all plants and stones and animals possessing an intellectual life according to a celestial nature.
He's saying that stones, plants, and animals possess an intellectual life according to a celestial nature. Do they? Mm -hmm. They have to, I guess. They have an intellectual life. Now the ancients, having contemplated this mutual sympathy of things applied for occult purposes, both celestial and terrene natures, by means of which, through a certain solitude, uh, they deduce divine virtues into this inferior abode. For indeed, solitude itself is a sufficient cause of binding things together in a union and consent. Uh, thus, if a piece of paper is heated and afterwards placed near a lamp, Though it does not touch the fire, the paper will be suddenly inflamed, and the flame will descend from the superior to the inferior parts. This heated paper we may compare to a certain relation of inferiors to superiors, and its approximation to the lamp, to the opportune use of things according to place, time, place, and manner. Matter. But the possession of fire into the paper aptly represents the presence of divine light. Really? Divine to that nature which is capable of its reception. Is it okay? Now it's saying that the procession, procession of fire into the paper aptly represents the presence of divine light to that nature which is capable of its reception. You think so? I don't know if it's divine light. Well, it's light, I guess. Lastly, the inflammation of the paper may be compared to the deification of mortals and to the illumination of material natures, which are afterwards carried upwards like the enkindled paper. Enkindle paper. You think that's like having a Kindle? <laughs> to read this with a Kindle? For a certain participation of divine seed. Again, the lotus, before the rising of the sun, folds its sleeves into itself, but gradually expands them on its rising, unfolding them in proportion to the sun's ascent to the zenith, but as gradually contracting them as that illuminary descends to the west, whence this plant. By the expansion and contraction of its leaves appears no less to honor the sun than men by the gesture of their eyelids and the motion of their lips. Do <laughs> you think when I go out in the early morning and exercise by the wall with the sun shining that I'm worshiping the sun <laughs> or just exercising? <laughs> but you should do both. I worship with my exercises. Uh -huh. But this imitation and certain participation of supernal light is not only visible in plants which possess nothing more than a vestige of life, but likewise in particular stones. Oh my goodness. Here we have all this like geminality. It's all like magic. You know? It's all like her, her, what is it? Hermetics? Particular stones, thus the stone, sunstone, by its golden rays, imitates those of the sun. But the stone called the eye of heaven, or of the sun, has a figure similar to the pupil of an eye, and a ray shines from the middle of the pupil. 
Thus, too, the lunar stone, which has a figure similar to the moon when horned by a certain change of itself, follows the lunar motion. Remember we went to that magic store in, uh, what was it, in, so in the East Village? <laughs> mm -hmm. What was that? A wick? They had a wicca and uh, magic. <laughs> Lastly, the stone called Heliosenalinus. Heliosalinus. Now, in other words, the sun and the moon. Mm -hmm. Imitates after a manner the congress of those luminaries which it images by its color, so that all things are full of divine natures, terrestrial natures, receiving the plentitude of such as are celestial, but celestial of super-celestial essences. Uh -huh. Now we're discovering super celestial essences. Mm -hmm. mm. Natures which are not connected with body. Uh-oh. Now they're beyond the body. While every, or every order of things proceeds gradually in a beautiful descent from the highest to the lowest, for whatever particulars are connected into one, Above the order of things uh, are afterwards dilated in descending, various souls being distributed under the various ruling divinities. Uh -huh. hmm. Ah, this is. Hmm. We're going to get some rocks from that star, <laughs> some sun and moon rocks. <laughs> What if we, what did the book, remember the book Mysticism had a whole section on magic. Uh, but we could just practice pure mysticism. In the next place, there are many solar animals, such as lions and cocks, which participate according to their nature of a certain solar divinity. Whence it is wonderful how much inferiors yield to superiors in the same order, though they do not yield in magnitude and power. Well, apparently the, the cock the cock or the rooster is a solar animal, right? He's the one that's waking you up in the morning. But he's putting lions in there. Hence it is said that a cock is very much feared as it were reverenced by a lion. As it were rev rever reverenced by a lion. The reason of which we cannot assign from Why matter is or sense. It's re re what's re rever what I don't know that? why I can't what, say that what word. Is that is by a lion? The cock. Really? Yeah, that's what it's saying here. The reason of which we cannot assign from manner or sense, but from the contemplation alone of a supernal order. All right, so you, we so don't... if you have a cock and a lion, the lion will not eat the cock? Oh, I don't know. He respects a cock, maybe. Uh, we don't, he, it says he re, reveres, reverences, <laughs> Alexa, can you pronounce the word 
R E V E R E N C E D. I pronounce that reverence, but I'm always working on how I say things, and I might not have it right. She, she pronounced it reverenced. Can you define that word? Can you define the word reverenced? Alexa. Alexa, can you define the word reverenced? As a noun, reverence is usually defined as a feeling or attitude of deep respect tinged with awe, veneration. As a verb, reverence is usually defined as to regard or treat with reverence, venerate. For more, ask me to give you more definitions for reverence. Thank you. All right, so the lion uh, respects the cock. The reason of which we don't know, because you have to contemplate. You have to meditate in deep meditation. So it's not, ordinary mortals won't know that. <laughs> you have to be enlightened. <laughs> For thus we shall find that the presence of the silver virtue accords more with a cock than with a lion. <laughs> So the cock has more than the lion. This will be evident from considering. I could say that, that, that the lion revere, reverences the cock. Uh -huh. This will be evident considering that the cock, as it were, with certain hymns, applauds and calls to the rising sun when he bends his course to us from the anthropods. Uh, and that the solar angels sometimes appear in forms of this kind, who, though they are without shape, yet present themselves to us, who are connected with shape in some sensible form. You think there are solar angels? We're getting early into magic here. <laughs> sometimes, too, there are demons with a leonine front. Leonine front who, when a cock is placed before them, unless they are of a solar order, suddenly disappear. And this because those natures which have an inferior rank in the same order always reverence their superiors, such as many on beholding the images of divine men as a custom from the very view to be fearful of perpetuating anything base. In fine, some things turn round correspondent to the revolutions of the sun as the plants which we have mentioned, and others after manner imitate the solar rays as the palm and the date, some the fury nature of the sun as a laurel, and others a different property, for instance, or indeed we may perceive that the properties which are collected in the sun are everywhere distributed to subsequent. Subsequent nature is constituted in a solar order. That is, to angels, demons, souls, animals, plants, and stones, whence the authors of the ancient priesthood discovered from things apparent the worship of superior powers, while they mingled some things and purified others. Uh -huh. They mingled many things indeed together because they saw that some simple substances possessed a divine property though not taken singly, sufficient to call down that particular power of which they were participants, whence by the mingling of many things together they attracted upon us a supernal influx, and 
By the composition of one thing from many, they produced an assimilation to that one, which is above many, and composed statues for the mixture of various substances comprising in sympathy and consent. Besides this, they collected composite odors by a divine art into one, comprehending a multitude of powers and symbolizing with the unity of a divine essence, considering that division debilitates each, other, each of these, but that mingling them together restores them to the idea of their exemplar. My goodness. But sometimes one herb or one stone is sufficient to a divine operation. So they were talking about how first you mix things. And here, just one thing might be divine. Thus, a thistle is sufficient to procure the sudden appearance of some superior power. But a laurel, a racinum, or a thorny kind of sprig, the land and sea, onion, the coral, the diamond, and the jasper operate as a safeguard. The heart of a mole is subservient to divination but sulfur and marine water to purification. Whence the ancient priest, by the mutual relation and sympathy of things to each other, collected their virtues into one, but expelled them by repugnancy and antipathy, and purifying when it was requisite, with sulfur and butamen, and sprinkling with marine water. For sulfur purifies from the sharpness of its odor. Remember how they have like sulfur springs, like hot springs? Yeah. They also sell, I do have sulfur powder in the beautiful drink. Hmm. Sulfur powder? Mm -hmm. you do, is there sulfur waters, right? Mm -hmm. You could get like a mineral water, a sulfur, right? Sulfur purifies from the sharpness of its odor, but marine water on account of its fury portion. Besides this, in the worship of the gods, they offered animals and other substances congruous to their nature and received in the first place the powers of demons as proximate to natural substances and operations. And by these natural substances they convert into their presence those powers to which they approached. Afterwards, they proceeded from daemon and demons to the powers and enemy energies of the gods, partly indeed with daemoniku instruction, but partly by their own industry, interpreting convenient symbols and ascending to proper intelligence of the gods. And lastly, laying aside natural substances, their operations, they received themselves into the communion and fellowship of the gods. It will doubtless be objected that most of the present period by most it will doubtless be objected by most of the present period who believe in nothing beyond the information of their senses that plants, animals and stones no longer possess those wonderful sympathetic powers which are mentioned by Proclus in the above extract. <laughs> That's Thomas Taylor saying that all this stuff has been rejected. <laughs> it was it will doubtless be objected by most of the present period, that present period 
to him is 1818, the scientific age, who believe in nothing beyond the information of their senses, that plants, animals, and stones no longer possess those wonderful sympathetic powers, which are mentioned by Proclus in the above extract, and in answer to any such an objector, whose little soul, in the language of the Ju Emperor Julian, is indeed acute, but sees nothing, with a vis vision healthy and sound. It must be said that this is not at all wonderful at a period, when, as the author, as the Asclepian Dialogue justly observes, quote, there is a lamentable departure of divinity from man, when nothing worthy of heaven or celestial concerns is heard or believed, and when, when every divine voice is by a necessary silence dumb. Hmm. It's a, do you think it's lamentable? Emperor Julian, is that Emperor Julian, is he a, um, is Julian, is he a, um, Byzantine Emperor? Mm. I don't know if he was Roman, yeah. I think he was Roman. The Asclepian Dialogue justly observes, quote, There is a lamentable departure of divinity from man, when nothing worthy of heaven or celestial concerns is heard or believed, when every divine voice is by a necessary silence dumb. You think if we don't believe this book, um, believe Pythagoras, that we're maybe it's be lamentable mm -hmm. if we haven't read the classics. Mm -hmm. If we don't read Plato and Pythagoras, and no. read all of the it classics. <laughs> okay, if we don't learn uh, the divinity. Things worthy of heaven. If we don't learn celestial concerns, it's lamentable. But to the philosophic reader, it must be observed that as in the realms of generation, or in other words, the sublunary region holds vis-a-vis -vis the spheres of the different elements, remain perpetually according to nature, but their parts are sometimes according and sometimes contrary to nature. This must also be true of the parts of the earth. When those circulations therefore take place during which parts, which the parts of the earth subsist according to nature, which are justly called by Plato fertile periods, the powers of plants, animals, and stones, magically sympathize with superior natures in consequence of more abundant participation of them through a greater degree of aptitude to receive and alliance to the partic participated powers. But during those circulations in which the parts of the earth subsist contrary to nature, as at pre present, which Plato calls barren periods, the powers of plants, animals, and stones no longer possess a magic sympathy and consequently are no longer capable of producing magical operations. Do you understand that? What are the barren periods? It seems as mentioned in Plato. 
Mm. I don't know any magic. A problem from England where farmers are uh, planting and uh, they farm actually according to those. Uh, oh, oh, by. Oh, by celestial truths, by like magical. And maybe they there's a magic to farming. Hmm. It's like having the right timing for uh, planting and harvesting or something. In the same, uh, in the same direction. Yeah, interesting. Well, herbology must be heavily related to magic, or herbs and plants, and uh, I don't know. Farming. You could farm according to ancient magic. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. <laughs> We're learning that something. It's hard to imagine the, the sort of knowledge that existed back then. The eternal essence of number is the most providential principle of the universe. Wow. <clears throat> this is numbers. Eternal essence of number. This is real Pythagoreanism here. The following account of the manner in which the Pythagoreans philosophized about numbers is extracted from my theoretical arithmetic, and the information contained in it is principally derived from the great Syrianus. There's a guy, that's a person, Syrianus. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. <clears throat> I guess we should read Proclus on the theology of Plato. <laughs> Are you going to read Proclus? Uh, I don't know what we're reading. Huh? What? Yeah. The Pythagoreans, turning from the vulgar paths and delivering their philosophy in secret to those alone who were worthy to receive it, <clears throat> exhibit it to others through mathematical names, hence they called forms, numbers, as things, which are the first separated from imperturbable union, for the natures which are above forms are also above separation. The all-perfect... Uh, Multitude of forms, therefore they obscurely signified through the du, dia, duad, 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 but they indicated the first formal principles by the monad and diad, one, monad and duad, diad, one and two, as not being numbers. And also by the first triad and tritrod. 
as being the first numbers. The first, the one being odd, and the other even. <coughs> From which, by addition, the di decad ten. Dedka. Oh, you count them. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four added up is ten. <coughs> The decad is generated from the sum of 1, 2, 3, 4, and 4 is 10. Uh, yeah, they believed, did they believe in base 10 for counting? Or? <coughs> I think so. Hmm. Hmm. We are supposed to study uh, number theory. In fact, I have some unusual books called The Myth of Invariance and uh, some other odd books on music theory. But after numbers and secondary and multifarious lives introducing geometrical prior to physical magnitudes, these also they refer to numbers. <coughs> as to formal causes and the principles of these, referring the point, indeed, as being impartable to the monad, but a line as the first interval to the duad, and again as superficies as having a more abundant interval to the triad, <coughs> and the solid to the tetrad. Is that how you pronounce it? They also called as it evidence from the testimony of Aristotle the first length, the duad, for it is not simply length, but the first length, in order that this they might signify cause. In a similar manner also they denominated the first breath, uh, the triad, and the first depth, the tetrad, the number four. They also referred to formal principles, all psychical knowledge. Like psychic. Psychic knowledge. Then intellectual knowledge, indeed, as being contracted. According to impartable union, they referred to the monad, but scientific knowledge as being evolved and <clears throat> as proceeding from cause to the thing caused, yet through the in erratic, and always through the same things, they referred to the duad. Are those pronounced right, duad? What? Viad. Diad. And the opinion to the triad, because the power of it is not always directed to the same thing, but at one time inclines to the true and at another to the false. What's that mean? The power of it is not always directed to the same thing. Uh -huh. what? I don't know. Triad. But they referred sense to the tetrad, tetrad. That's four. Tetrad. Tetrad. Because it is an apprehension of bodies, for in the duad, indeed, there is one interval from one monad to, monad to the other. But in the triad, there are two intervals from any one monad to the rest. And in the tetrad, there are three. 
They referred, therefore, to principles, everything knowable vis-a-vis -vis beings and the Gnostic powers of these. But they divided beings not according to breadth, but according to depth, uh, into intelligibles, objects of science, objects of opinion, and sensibles. <clears throat> In a similar manner, also, they divided knowledge into intellect, science, opinion, and sense. The extremity, therefore, of the intelligible triad, or animal itself, as it is called by Plato in the Timaris, is assumed from the division of the objects of knowledge, manifesting the intelligible order in which forms themselves vis-à-vis -vis the first forms and the principles of these are contained vis-a-vis -vis the ideas of the one itself and of the first length, which is the duod itself, and also the ideas of the first breath and the first depth. For in the common, the term first is adapted to all of them, vis-a-vis -vis the triad itself and the tetrad itself. I guess Thomas Taylor really is like a Neoplatonist, I guess, because he's covering all this stuff. To read him is to just be read Neoplatonism. Again, the Pythagoreans and Plato did not denominate idea from one thing and ideal number from another. But since the assertion is eminently true that all things are similar to number, it is evident that number, and especially every ideal number, was denominated on account of its par paradigmatic peculiarity. <laughs> Do you think that the numbers have a paradigmatic peculiarity? Paradigmatic. Alexa? Can you define the word paradigmatic? The adjective paradigmatic is usually defined as of or relating to a set of forms all of which contain a particular element, especially the set of all inflected forms based on a single stem or theme. For more, ask me to give you more definitions for paradigmatic. If anyone, however, wishes to apprehend this from the appellation itself, Ask according to the uh, plate, according to... Oh, dear. <laughs> Don't complicate things. It is easy to infer that idea was so-called from wondering it were its participants similar to itself, imparting to them form, order, beauty, and unity, and this in consequence of always preserving the same form expanding its own power to the infinity of particulars and investing with the same species as eternal participants. Number also, since it imparts proportion and elegant arrangement to all things, was a lot of this appellation. For the ancients says, Syrianus, in, says Syrianus in Aristotle's metaphysical lab, call to adapt or compose 
arse, whence is derived number, arithmos, number. See, they have a, the Greek word here, ari, arithmos. I have to practice my Greek, arithmos, arithmos, or number. And the other word, it says, ara, arase. Hence, anarshan, anarishan, among the Greeks signifies incomposite. That word means incomposite. Anarshan, anarshan, incomposite. Hence, too. Those Grecian sayings, you will adopt the balance. They place number together with them, and also number and friendship. Uh-huh. Goodness. From all which number was called by the Greeks, arithmos, uh-huh. as that which measures and orderly, arranges all things and unites them in an amicable league. Quote, Further still, some of the Pythagoreans discoursed about inseparable numbers alone. In other words, numbers which are inseparable from mundane natures, but others about such as have a subsistent, separate, subsistence separate from the universe, in which are paradigms. They saw those numbers are contained, which are perfected by nature. But others, making a distinction between the two, unfolded their doctrine in a more clear and perfect manner. If it be requisite, however, to speak concerning the difference of those monads and their privation of difference, we must say that the monads, which consist in quantity, are by no means to be extended to essential numbers. But when we call essential numbers monads, we must assert that all of them mutually differ from each other by difference itself and that they possess a privation of difference from sameness. I don't understand this. I thought I... (laughs) It is evident also that those which are in the same order are contained through mutual comparison in sameness rather than in difference but that those which are in different orders are conversant with much diversity through the dominion of difference. <laughs> this is why I'm, I didn't take philosophy in college, because I read some things I can't understand it. <laughs> I would, uh, my mind might wander. I'd look out the window and, <laughs> you see... The professor would say, Mr. Smith, why is your mind wandering? Again, the Pythagoreans asserted that nature produces sensibles by numbers. But then, these numbers are not mathematical but physical. And as they spoke symbolically, it is not improbable that they demonstrated every property of sensibles by mathematical names. However, says Sirianus, To ascribe to them a knowledge of sensible numbers alone is not only ridiculous, but highly impious. For they received, indeed, from the theology of Orpheus, uh, 
the principles of intelligible and intellectual numbers. They assigned them an uh, abundant progression and extended their dominion as far as to sensibles themselves. Dear, you think this theory of numbers exists in Orpheus? Do you think Pythagoras is Orpheus? <laughs> Goodness. Again, their conceptions about mathematical and physical numbers were as follow. Hmm. We're continuing as follow. My goodness. It's a whole doctrine on numbers. As in everything, according to the doctrine of Aristotle, one thing corresponds to matter and another to form in any number. For, as for instance, the pentad, pentad, it's five nomads, monads, in short, its quantity and the number, which is the subject of participation, are derived from the duad itself. But its form, the pentad itself, is from the monad, for every form is a monad, and unites its subject quantity, the pentad itself, therefore, which is a monad, proceeds from the principal monad, forms its subject quantity, which is in itself forms was formless and contain connects it to its own form. For there are two principles of mathematical numbers in our souls, the monad and the number one, which corresponds in itself all the forms of numbers, and the corresponds to the monad in intellect intellectual natures, and the duad, number two, which is a certain generative principle of infinite power. Infinite power, which on this account, as being the image of the never-falling, failing, and intelligible duad, is called indefinite. While this proceeds to all things, it is not deserted in its course by the monad. Number one, but that which proceeds from the number one continually, or monad continually, distinguishes and forms boundless quantity, gives a specific distinction to all its orderly progressions, and incessantly adorns them with forms, and as in mundane natures, there is neither anything formless or any vacuum among the species of things. So likewise, in mathematical number, neither is any quantity left innumerable. For thus the forming power of the monad would be vanquished by the indefinite duod, nor does any medium intervene between the consecutive numbers and the well-disposed energy of the monad. My God, dear. Now my mind's wandering again in philosophy class, <laughs> you think I would get a bad grade in philosophy. <laughs> Neither, therefore, does the pentad insist of substance and accident as a white man, nor of genius and difference as man of animal and tripod, door of five monads mutually touching each other like a bundle of wood, nor of things mingled like a drink made with from honey, wine, and honey, nor of things sustaining position, as stones by their position complete the house, nor lastly, as things numerable, for these are nothing else than particulars. But it does not follow that numbers themselves, because they consist of 
indivisible monads have nothing else besides monads for the multitude of points in continued quantity is an indivisible multitude yet it is not on this account that there is a completion of something else from the points themselves but this takes place because there is something in them which corresponds to matter and something which corresponds to form lastly when we unite the triad with the tetrad we say that we have made seven his searching, however, is not true, for monads conjoined with monads produce indeed the subject of the number seven, but nothing more. Who then imparts the heptatic form to these monads? Who is it also that gives the form of a bed to a certain number of pieces of wood? Shall we not say that the soul of the carpenter... What, what, what page is it now? Uh, 220, 224. 224, really? Yeah, God. I like to read that on the Eptad. You'd like to read it? Because you read on the Eptad, I'd like to read it. Eptad. I'm going to stop here because I'm reached an hour. We were reading additional notes to the book Life of Pythagoras and Iambicus, translated by Thomas Taylor. And uh, we got deep into the, we've been reading a long part on uh, numbers. The eternal essence of number. Of course, that's a major Pythagorean topic. Uh, do you think everything is just a bunch of numbers? Uh-huh. uh-huh. Well, some uh, some modern uh, some modern astrophysicists are just telling us that everything is just a bunch of numbers. <laughs> so this is not so old as we think, <laughs> or it's not so untrue uh, as we well, think. Yeah, well. We're looking into the investigating the heart of mathematics and the discovery of one of the first mathematicians. Uh, this is uh, readings of Thomas Taylor in a way, because it's additional notes. Thomas Taylor. Yeah, he must have been uh, some person. He was quite a quite a scholar. Uh, he's uh, he's underrated in a way. He should be. Oh, of, he's uh, been underrated. Because religion, you know, Christianity. Yeah, the religion may have been hostile to him, be, being a Neoplatonist. Yeah, they didn't like it, and some of them didn't even like the transcendentalists with their obsession with it. They thought it was. They uh, like to be The Christians, they yeah, didn't appreciate it always. Yeah. More true. Not even, uh, 